Noel Regney was an aspiring composer. He was a classical musician, and he lived during the time of World War II, and he was eventually conscripted into the army and fought as a Nazi, and eventually escaped, and then he fought as a resistance fighter in France. That's where he was from, literally fighting for peace. After the war, music brought him to the States, and he came to New York City to the Beverly Hills Hotel, and he saw a beautiful woman named Gloria Shane playing the piano in the dining room. And even though he only spoke French and she spoke English, they ended up getting married a month later, only able to communicate through music. She was a a rock singer, a pianist, a composer. He's a classical composer, bringing themselves together. Their marriage was unique. What did a French classical composer and an American rock and roll singer have in common? They couldn't even speak the same language, yet it was their unique personalities brought together from different continents, from different life experiences that would create a song that would cause millions and millions through the decades at Christmas to stop, look, and listen, to magnify Jesus, to magnify Christmas, to ponder it carefully. Noel had prayed that World War II would be the war to end all wars. And instead, he was sad to see the Korean War and then the Vietnam War. France was involved in both. As more and more men died, Noel wondered if there would ever be true peace in our world. And we ask that question today. As he picked up his pen to compose, his heart was drawn back to the very first Christmas. And he wrote a song of Christmas. He's fighting off some of the most horrific memories he had of World War II and fighting and seeing men die, fighting anxiety about the current world events. He began exploring and magnifying the first Christmas. And the noisy, dangerous world around him grew strangely quiet. Noel remembered his childhood in the scene of sheep walking through the French landscape. Noel pondered the innocence of a newly born lamb. He wrote these words and brought this poem to his wife and asked his wife to write the music because he didn't want it to sound classical. He wanted it to be in the people's tongue of the day. She wrote the melody, but she inserted one extra note that caused the lyrics to no longer fit the melody. When Noel heard the beautiful melody, instead of deleting the one note, he added one word. Instead of said the wind to the little lamb, he wrote said the night wind to the little lamb. Do you hear what I hear? When Gloria asked Noel to change one more line, Noel balked. Gloria said, I told him that no one in the U.S., no one in the States would understand a tale as big as a kite. Yet he wouldn't change that line. And as it turned out, he was right because it was a line that's nostalgic 
and dearly loved. The song became a hit. Husband and wife writing team said that of the hundreds of times the song's been covered, the one that is our favorite is by Robert Goulet. When he comes to the line, pray for peace, people everywhere, they said that it's as if he's shouting it, as if demanding peace in our world. The hands of the woman who wrote this tune have been silenced as she can no longer play the piano due to a medical condition. And the man who wrote the lyrics, his voice has been silenced as well as he had a a major stroke rendering him unable to speak. Yet this song plays throughout malls, concert halls every year, and it encourages us to closely examine, magnify, to focus our attention on Jesus on Christmas, to stop, to listen. Do you hear what I hear? To examine more closely the only story in history that makes sense, and that is Jesus coming into the world. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke 1. Luke 1. Mary and Elizabeth were a lot like Noel Regney and Gloria Shane when it comes to their songwriting. Two broken people with different experiences, different callings coming together. They were cousins who, out of nowhere, had their lives turned upside down. Elizabeth was the mother of John the Baptist and was the wife of a high priest named Zechariah. Zechariah had been visited by the angel Gabriel, and he was told, as we saw last week, that they would have a child, that they would bear a son, but they were older people, and it seemed impossible. So Zechariah asked Gabriel, how could this be true? How would he know this is true? In other words, the man who had an angel standing right in front of him, this man asks for a sign. When, by definition, as we saw last week, an angel appearing to you is a sign. So Gabriel shut Zachariah's mouth, rendering him unable to speak during the entirety of Elizabeth's pregnancy. The very fact that Elizabeth was pregnant, that was a trial since she was older. Their reputation as spiritual leaders was certainly at stake. Mary, of course, was also visited by Gabriel. And she was also told that she would bear a son, Jesus. Mary was a virgin. She was pledged to be married to Joseph. Parents, I want you to imagine if your teenage daughter comes to you and tells you that she's pregnant and that the reason she's pregnant is because the Holy Spirit came upon her and she became pregnant in that way. And that an angel appeared to her and told her that even though she had never had sex, she was still pregnant. How would you respond to that? How would people respond to that? Imagine being her fiancé and hearing that. Even after Joseph was visited by an angel, there were tremendous trials ahead of them. There was travel. They had to go and be taxed. They were running for their lives. Elizabeth and Zechariah also had many trials ahead of them. As a few years later, we believe that Zechariah was martyred 
because they were searching for John the Baptist to kill all of the babies under two, according to Herod's directive. Mary's song is called the Magnificat, and Magnificat comes from the word magnify, as we said earlier. What is it that you are magnifying in your life? Last week, we looked at just one word of worship. The word of worship we looked at was hallelujah. Hallelujah means literally praise God, praise the Lord. And we saw that all of our brokenness in our lives can stay as brokenness or it can become a broken hallelujah, leading to the final hallelujah, which belongs to Christ alone. And so today, the one word of worship I want to focus on and I want you to take with you throughout this week is the word magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord. Look at verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And I love that word magnify. The word magnify is only used here in the New Testament and then once in Romans. It's used a dozen times in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 7.26, And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Psalm 69.30, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 34, 3, O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Think about the word magnify. What does it mean? It means to make something appear larger than your eyesight will allow you to see so you can explore it more fully. We all magnify something. At all times, we are magnifying machines as humans. We major on magnifying. That's what we do all day long is we are always magnifying something. Both microscopes and telescopes magnify objects, but in far different ways. Think about it. A microscope makes something small become, in your sight, much bigger than it actually is. Think about a microscope and looking under a microscope. A telescope makes something that seems small or insignificant appear to be revealed and be revealed as great as it actually is. The question is, are you a microscope in your magnification or are you a telescope? Are you focused on the small things, the things that are small, and studying those and looking at those and the details, or are you a telescope, and are you focused on things far, far greater than yourself? Mary could have easily been a microscope. There were many small matters that she could have magnified when visiting her cousin Elizabeth. She could have had all of this stuff happening in her life. There was probably people whispering about her. She had trials ahead. She had relationships at stake. She was just a young kid, and yet she could have magnified the small things. 
She could have been a microscope. Our natural tendency is to be a microscope, is to magnify small things, to take things way, way smaller than God, things far smaller than him, and put them under a microscope and spend our lives studying those small, inconsequential things. I mean, think about conflict that you have. Think about a disagreement, maybe with a family member or maybe with a friend. Think about a time when you've been hurt by someone, when you've been treated unfairly, and you begin to pick apart the conversations that you had with that person, their motives that they had, your motives, words they said, words they didn't say, whether they said thank you or not, whether they expressed gratitude to you or not, whether they treated you fairly, and unpacking all of those motives and looking at those under a microscope and trying to figure out what happened, trying to prove, it, prove people wrong, fixating on small objects, or we magnify ourselves. I read verses earlier that use the word magnify about magnifying God. Magnify the Lord with me. My soul magnifies the Lord. But magnify in the scripture is also used in another sense. Psalm 35, 26. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor. Watch. Who magnify themselves. Ezekiel 35, 13. And you magnified yourself. Against me with your mouth. You multiplied your words against me. I heard it. When we magnify ourselves, we're microscopes because we're taking something that is so small, so tiny, and making it appear huge. We're called to be telescopes, to be people who make God seem as great and as magnificent, and as glorious, and as gracious, and as forgiving as he truly is. But how do we do that? It's amazing to me how we miss the point of many of these stories and scriptures. As I was studying this passage this past week, I found that the account of Gabriel visiting Zechariah is remarkably similar to the account of Gabriel visiting Mary. You have these two stories and they're both very similar. First, you have the angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Fear not to Zechariah. Fear not to Mary. Zechariah was troubled. Mary was troubled. Zechariah and Elizabeth will have a son in an unlikely scenario, an impossible scenario. Mary and Joseph will have a son in an impossible scenario. And the similarities go on and on. But the one that's where it may not be similar, is Zechariah questions. And that's why his voice is taken away from him. You know, show me how this can be. Give me a sign. And Mary, though she's faithful and unquestioning, and she just accepts it, so we should use Mary as our example, but not Zechariah. Only the fact is, is that's not true. Zechariah questioned, and listen, Mary questioned in the exact same manner almost. Luke 1, 26. Let's look at the account. In the sixth month, 
the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? I thought Mary didn't question. I thought Mary was perfectly faithful. The reality is that Mary questioned Gabriel and Zechariah questioned Gabriel. Mary wasn't punished for questioning. She was rewarded and honored. Zechariah was punished and lost his ability to speak. So everyone tries to figure out why was Zechariah punished, but Mary wasn't. Some say that Zechariah was older and more mature. Mary was just a young girl, so Zechariah should have known better. And that's why Zechariah was punished. Some say that it's all about the faith expressed. That in verse 20, Gabriel says to Zechariah that because he didn't what? Believe. His mouth will be shut. But look in verse 45. Look at what Elizabeth says to Mary. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. One commentator said he can imagine Mary and Elizabeth in one room and Zachariah in the other room and Elizabeth saying this very loudly so Zachariah can hear it that Mary believed Zachariah and you didn't, as if to chastise him. Another commentator says that Gabriel's an angel And so angels aren't perfect. This is a serious commentator, by the way. Respected one. Angels aren't perfect, so perhaps when he saw Zechariah, he was having a bad day. That he was impatient. And then when he saw Mary, he was having a better day. He was in a better mood. I mean, we'll do anything we can to try to justify these accounts. Another says that Zechariah was the last real high priest. So shutting his mouth represented the idea that now Christ was the new high priest. All of these are interesting. Maybe some of them have some merit. But notice that neither Mary nor Elizabeth are magnifying this issue at all. They're not focused on the details. They're not focused on who did what and who was punished and who said what. I read actual sermons that pull out the example of Mary's faithfulness juxtaposed against Zechariah's unfaithfulness and says, be like Mary, don't be like Zechariah, amen, the end. And that is a horrible way to read the scriptures. Isn't it possible that there was no reason why Gabriel punished Zechariah for questioning but didn't punish Mary for doing essentially the same thing? Isn't that the way grace is? Isn't grace wild and uncontrollable? Isn't grace unfair and unjust in many ways? 
When we magnify ourselves and our situations, you can imagine Elizabeth magnifying this situation and asking, why did this happen to my husband, but nothing happened to this teenage girl? Or more deeply, why is it that I'm going to have the forerunner, John the Baptist, but she's going to have Jesus, she's going to have the Messiah? When we magnify ourselves, our situations become transactional. You do this for me, I do this for you. The world treats me this way, so I'm going to treat the world that way. I vote you in, you do this for me, and if you don't, I'm going to write something on Facebook about it. I mean, that's the way our world is. Think about marriages. Think about looking at our marriages and magnifying different situations transactionally. You do this for me. I did this for you, so you need to do this for me. Grace isn't like that. Grace is wild, unpredictable. Grace deals with different people differently. Both Mary and Zechariah, they're both broken in many different ways. I mean, we look at this and we sensationalize the story, but put yourself back there. This is, this is a broken woman. These are broken people. Their lives have been turned upside down, and the grace of God meets them at the point of their brokenness in much different ways. The grace of God mends them in different ways. When I went to China, I was surprised to find missionaries who were not just from America there, or from the West, but also from some of the Far Eastern countries. There was one Japanese missionary we, we visited, and he reached people there through a house church, an underground house church, through art. And he was a master of the Japanese art form. It's called kintsuji. Kintsuji is the, it's the craft of repairing and remaking broken pottery, broken ceramic, broken porcelain. So a customer brings in something that's precious to them, a broken piece of pottery, perhaps a well-loved heirloom that's been broken. And what he would do is he would use a mix of lacquer and gold to mend the pottery back together, to piece it back together. The mended piece of pottery becomes even more valuable because of its brokenness. It's more desirable because of that. The brokenness, the hurt, the pain, the broken hallelujahs we talked about last week becomes part of the unique history of the pottery. The brokenness becomes part of the story. Larger broken spots that require more gold and lacquer, that's even more highly desirable because of the largeness of it, because it stands out. At times, the artist may elect not to fix a spot, to leave it open, to leave it empty, to leave it broken, because there's some spaces that just can't be fixed, that can't be mended. There's some holes that can't be repaired. We all have pieces of us that have been broken, that can't be replaced. Think about it. I mean, no two pieces of pottery, of porcelain, no two pieces are broken in the same exact way. And therefore, no two pieces are mended in the same exact way. Some of you have lost a child. So you could have two families losing a child, 
handling it in two different ways, being broken in two different ways, being mended and healed in two different ways, but the end result is broken beauty. You know, a popular verse is that God brings beauty from ashes, and he does, but I believe that God brings beauty in ashes. One of these days I want to hear a testimony, not of someone who's been brought through drug addiction, who's been brought through disbelief or whatever it may be. I want to hear a testimony from a person who's in the midst of drug addiction, who's in the midst of disbelief, who's in the midst of brokenness, because that's where God's grace meets us. These are two broken women, two women whose lives have been turned upside down and God is dealing with them both differently. But what we see in the similarities is that they don't magnify themselves. They don't magnify the situation. Mary magnifies the Lord. Do you know how we're supposed to follow Mary's example? Is only as she magnifies Christ. That's it. We're not to follow her example and how faithful she was or how kind or whatever. We don't even really have accounts of that. All we can see is her magnifying the Lord, taking the focus off of herself and putting it on God. Only pointing to Jesus. Paul said, only follow me as I follow Christ. Be like me, only as I'm like Christ. That's it. You know, the angular resolution of a telescope is the telescope's ability to distinguish the smallest possible details of an object. So the greater the angular resolution, the more powerful and accurate is the telescope. What is your angular resolution? How closely have you studied Jesus? How much have you abided in Jesus just this past week? Paul said, if you want to see God, look at Jesus. That Jesus is the icon or the image of God. Noel Regney and Gloria Shane took the focus off of themselves, off of a world at war, a world that is addicted to war and strife and focused on Jesus and encourage us to stop, to look, to listen, to hear, to see Jesus. As a musician, hymns have always been a challenge for me. I mean, they aren't a great musical form, if I'm being honest. There's been tens of thousands of hymns written, and really only about 50 have survived. Only about 50 are still popular. Fanny Crosby wrote over 8,000 hymns, and only to God be the glory and blessed assurance are well known. That's two. C.S. Lewis said that when he converted from atheism to Christianity, he said, I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. That's why we should always be writing new songs. Sing a new song, sing a new song. Many times when I'm asked, what are the greatest musical pieces, in my opinion? And that's a very difficult question to answer. Are you talking about the Baroque period or classical or romantic or renaissance? What period are you talking about? But I'm not trying to be difficult. But for me, many great classical works come to mind. Beethoven's symphonies, 
different concertos, arias from operas, oratorios. But in my top 10, there is one hymn. One hymn that I feel is not only the greatest Christian hymn, but one of the greatest songs of all time from a musical, lyrical, and emotional perspective. And I think part of the reason that this is one of the greatest songs written, and certainly one of the greatest hymns, I know it's arguable, is that the composer fixates, magnifies just one aspect of the birth of Christ. Magnifies it. Explores it. What kind of night was it when Jesus was born? Like, what was the night like? What was the world like when Jesus was born? And he answers this question and he says, it was filled with sin. It was filled with error. What was it like when Jesus was born? Souls were filled with worth. They began to feel worth. A new and glorious morning came. That this Jesus, that his law is love, his gospel would be peace. Magnifying Jesus. You know, this past week I spoke to our, uh, one of our schools about the issue of integrity, about the issue of cheating, about, you know, doing your own work. And that's a really difficult subject to talk to students about because it can eventually get into moralism and guilt and shame. I mean, how do you turn that into nothing but Jesus? And so I was, I was at a loss, and what came to me later on in the week was that the way that we don't cheat, the way to integrity, the way to honesty, is by abiding in Christ the many days, weeks, and months before you're sitting there with your tests and tempted to cheat or tempted to steal, that it truly is all about Jesus, all about magnifying Jesus, studying him carefully, studying him, exploring him, taking different aspects of him and fixating on those. And that's what this hymn writer did. In 1906, there was this new technology that no one could have ever imagined. And you would speak into a generator called a microphone and the sound you produced would go over the airwaves. Reginald Fessenden, he was the chief chemist for Thomas Edison, and he was the first voice ever heard on the airwaves on Christmas Eve in 1906. First time a human voice is heard. What were his words? What would he say? What would he say to the world? The very first words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. I mean, can you imagine shocked radio operators on ships hearing this miraculous voice on Christmas Eve interrupt their codes, their impulses? Yet when he was finished reading Luke 2, he picked up his violin and played the very first song ever heard on the radio. One of the greatest melodies of all time. It's the song 
that I believe is one of the greatest songs of all time.
appear before the presence of my God in the righteousness of Christ. Nothing but Christ. Nothing but Christ. Nothing but Christ. Give me nothing but Christ, and I am satisfied. Martin Luther said, nothing but Jesus is to be preached throughout all the world, starting with ourselves. Are you a microscope focused on the small stuff, or are you a telescope focused on the grandness, the bigness, the magnificence of God revealed to us in Christ?